how good are you at collaboration? We've all experienced the joy of working with people that we collaborate well with and the absolute grind of working with people who feel really hard to collaborate with. And sometimes it can feel like we're at the mercy of other people or circumstances, but actually learning to collaborate is a skill, uh, much like learning to influence is a skill. And that's what I'm talking about in today's episode. Welcome to the Influence and Impact podcast for female leaders. My name's Carla Miller, and I'm a leadership coach who helps female leaders to tackle self-doubt, become brilliant at influencing, and make more impact at work. I've created this podcast to help you to become a more inspiring and impactful leader. And I want to become the leadership BFF you didn't know you were missing until now. So in today's episode, I have welcomed Deb Meshek to the podcast. She is the author of a book called Collaborate. Um, however, it's got a silent H in it. So when you read it, it says Collaborate. How to build incredible collaborative relationships at work, even if you'd prefer to work alone. Now, that title really jumped out at me because it summarized some of those highs and lows of the workplace and collaboration. So I really enjoyed jumping on with Deb and having a conversation about it. And we talk about what collaboration is and why it matters, how and why it sometimes goes wrong. And Deb shares some super practical strategies for building those strong, successful working relationships that basically help us to enjoy everyday working life a bit more and succeed in our careers. So I'm going to share that episode with you in just a moment. In terms of what's happening over here, we've just kicked off the most recent open cohort of Influence and Impact. Um, Quite a few other people participating have been podcast listeners. Um, So hello to them if they're listening now. It's a fantastic group and I'm so excited to work closely with them and join them on their leadership journeys. Be Bolder starts later this month in October. So um, if you're looking to build your confidence and assertiveness, this will be the last cohort we run this year. The next one probably be February next year don't know how many times we will run the open program. So if it's on your wish list, do go and talk to your line manager about it. Um, You can download a PDF and share it with them. And then finally, we are bringing back our Influence for Success workshop. It's a half-day workshop all about advanced influencing skills, and that's going to run in November. So I have been busy with that, Um, also settling into everyday school, back-to-school life, um and autumn as the nights draw in um i am a big summer lover so i've just got some nice fairy lights that i'm going to hang up outside in my garden because fairy lights bring me joy so i'm hoping to bring a little bit of winter joy and i need to go read um those books on embracing autumn and winter and get my mindset in the right place so that's what's going on over here also delivering a lot of in-house workshops to all sorts of different companies and organizations Um, And that is a lot of fun and keeping me busy. So let's roll the episode and find out more about how you can become brilliant at collaborating.
so delighted to welcome Deb to the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Carla. So this is a topic close to my heart because it's so closely aligned with influencing, but I'd love to start by hearing a little bit more about your background and your story and how you came to focus on this area of collaboration. So I start the book, I've memorized my opening line. I don't know if that's lame or interesting, but the opening line of the book is the trailer park, my parents' alcoholism, and my PhD. These are my three great teachers of collaboration. And so my background is I grew up in a double-wide trailer in North Platte, Nebraska. And this, this space was fascinating because, you know, there's this asphalt grid with all of these little houses, these little trailers on it. And we were surrounded, the perimeter was surrounded by a chain link fence. And the rules were basically, you know, the kids would spill out of their homes at 9 a.m. And then they would be playing with each other. There were very few adults around. So this was in the 1970s. So both, you know, they're like, we hadn't yet gotten so worried about all of the missing children on the sides of milk cartons. It created a lot of parental anxiety that in me, the, the trailer park was this ultimate free range kid experience. So as kids got to figure out what we were going to play, how we were going to play it, what the rules of engagement were going to be, what consequences were going to be if some little jerk like didn't follow along with the rules. And so, you know, that we had to figure out how if we, you know, offended somebody um, by not following the rules, how we were going to reapproach that group and get invited back in. In other words, this was a great big play mat for figuring out how to do, how to be, how to play with other people, which frankly, I think a lot of our parenting nowadays um, takes away that opportunity to socialize children in, the, in that way. So that was the trailer park piece. I learned a lot about playing well with others there. And then the second piece was both of my parents struggled with alcoholism throughout my life. Um, and they died when I was 24. So this was like, you know, early life sorts of things. But they, um, you know, just any kiddo who's grown up in a household uh, with a lot of addiction has experienced this this thing where it's sometimes hard for you to have needs or to express those needs. And certainly it's difficult to have those needs responded to in a persistent, appropriate way. And so what I figured out really early on is how to turn to other adults in my life. So whether it was my teachers or the, the parents of my friends. Um, to get the sort of care and nurturing that I was often missing at home. And that was also through relationship and be by um, being able to pay attention to others' needs and interests and be able to engage with those um, as important, as important as my own. And sometimes I got into like something that needed therapy and I get that. But <laughs> this idea of it's through, you know, we're all moving through this world with needs and wants and interests and how do we navigate those in the context of working with other people ends up being important? And then ultimately, I ended up um, making my way to college and then making my way to graduate school and discovering that there was this whole field on the psychology of relationships. So there was like tons and tons of research being conducted on what makes a healthy relationship and how relationships degrade, how you repair and maintain them. All of these brilliant things, and that ended up being the the object of my study and my teaching and research for decades, whether as a professor out at Harvey Mudd College in California, or later running an organization focused on bringing viewpoint diverse or diverse viewpoints together. Um, this idea of wow, th you know, there, there are real strategies. Um, there are concrete things. This isn't all smoke and mirrors. This relationship building thing. So those three parts 
trailer park, my parents' alcoholism, and my PhD then kind of came together to develop my interest in collaboration. I love it. Um, And I thought it was a great first line, actually. So (laughs) I think it's a good idea to memorize it and share it. And as you were talking about um, the children playing together, you're so right in that I I was watching my small child, he's five, play with other five-year-olds. And it was really, really hard not to intervene when you could see the dynamics weren't working. I was I was reading your book and I was like, oh, I really should just, he needs to learn how to deal with this himself. Yeah. He was like the third person in a trio. Um, and actually I was worried for him and feeling some kind of anxiety on his behalf and some kind of rejection on his behalf that he just wasn't feeling. Actually. Right. It's really that is such a beautiful example where so much of it is our vicarious rejection onto them about what we think they should be feeling based on our years and years of experience after their age. And I'll put in a plug here for letgrow.org. It's a fantastic nonprofit organization focused on uh, advocating for free range parenting and for giving children their freedoms by giving them these perfectly developmentally appropriate challenges. Like how do you navigate the world? They also advocate for things like let the kid cross the street. Guess what? They're going to have to do it at some point. Let the kid learn how to use a knife. They're going to need to learn it. And it's not, you know, so it's, uh, I love that organization. And it, it's it been really helpful for me to help give myself permission to remove myself sometimes from those situations. So, Because so, it is, it's like, how do you, how do we keep our mouths shut? How do we sit on our hands when we, um, and of course we want to be helpful. We all want the best for our kids, but sometimes we end up intervening in ways that in the long run, undermine their success, their sense of pride, their confidence, all the sorts of things that we say we want to be nurturing in. Absolutely. And the other thing I really enjoyed about the book was how you pulled in, you were talking about there's all this research out there about relationships. And quite a bit of that is in what we would call sort of the personal development field, isn't it? It's about romantic relationships or relationships within your family. But the principles within that apply to the workplace as well, don't they? We do. And I mean, here's the thing. It's like all of us, whether we're in the workplace, the home, shopping at the mall, wherever we are, we're still humans. We're still individuals with hopes and needs and fears and anxieties and dreams. And it's not like somehow we just shed those things when we walk you know, into the elevator, uh, excuse me, the lift and go to work. <laughs> um, so it's It's like those are part of who we are. And unless we're developing our workplaces and our work lives, honoring the fact that those are a personal development piece, it's like we're we're leaving a lot of potential on the table and we're leaving a lot of secret keys unturned because that's just who we are as people. And so to be able to take that research literature from these romantic relationships and then port that over into how to create high quality collaborative relationships seems so natural and obvious to me. Um, and it's been so fun to do because it's really, some light bulbs have gone off, not just for me, but for my colleagues, for readers. I found that myself as well, when I was going through a lot of personal development learning and then applied that in the workplace, it was when I became, it made me a lot more conscious of the dynamics and what was going on. And my career really took off from there. And also just Spending that time thinking about yourself and your impact on other people and how you're holding yourself back. We just don't do it, do we? Especially when we're leaders, we're like, oh, we've got so much to do and my team should have all the training opportunities. And it's like, well, actually train yourself, develop yourself, and your team will benefit 
way, way more. It's so beautiful. And I noticed that in my, I recently over the past year have been meditating more and the the mindfulness and just going into these situations. And it's like, I'm slowed down a little bit and it's more of a slow motion. I can see the patterns unfolding. It's been so useful, not just in my personal life, but certainly in my work life as well. So I love that insight. And yeah, it's not a it's not an indulgence. It's an essential thing, a necessity, I think. And the book's obviously about collaboration. How do you define collaboration? So here's the stuffy academic version. So collaboration is the process of two or more people who know each other working together intentionally to advance a specific shared goal. And in the book, I break down why each of those each of those caveats um, or aspects is in there. But one of the things that drives me bonkers about this word collaboration is as a society, we use it as like the standard word for you know p- anybody working together to do anything. And I, I talked to a colleague and she said that she was co- collaborating with another colleague on designing the new bulletin board for the lobby. Another call, somebody else said they were collaborating on bringing in the lunch order. Colleague was collaborating on merging two organizations and trying to figure out how to do it in a way that prevented job loss. Like those fact any one word can be used to describe all of that shocking. And so, yeah, you know, so I wanted this definition, but still that definition, um, it leaves a lot of wiggle room. And so one of the frameworks that I have found super useful comes from Arthur Arthur Hillman. He's an organizational change person. And he talks about the collaboration continuum, that there are these really basic things we can do together, like just networking and exchanging information. So, you know, here, let's merge your database and my database. And and that's this very tit-for-tat um, exchange sort of form of working together. And a step up from there, now we can start actually altering processes or approaches to advance a shared goal. And a step up from there, now maybe we can start to share resources and that those resources might be our, our expertise or talent or space or instrumentation or money. Um, and, and that's different from just exchanging information. And then finally, at the end of this continuum, he talks about how there's collaboration. And the two defining features there are holding the other person's outcomes and goals and needs on par with our own. In other words, we're not trying to dominate or take over anybody. And the second key feature for him is finding opportunities, rather creating opportunities to actually learn from each other so that we can be better at what we're doing alone. So there's a a mutuality uh, present in collaboration that is not necessarily present in, you know, networking or cooperating or are these other models. And you make the same point um, that I do around influencing that this is such an important skill in the workplace, but we're not taught it, are we? We're not taught to collaborate. I, I, mean, I find this so, and I'm sure you've talked about this too, just how crazy it is. Like, so these skills, these quotes off skills are so incredibly essential in the workplace and in life, frankly. Um, they're hard to do well, yet there's this skills gap where we just don't teach people how to do it. And um, when I asked, I conducted a study to help prepare for the book and asked 1,100 people. These were people in the U.S., all employed full-time. Have you ever received any formal training and how to collaborate well? And a whopping third said, 
No, none at all. There were a couple who said, oh, I've gotten a few minutes, which I think means that they like get their professional development from TikTok. I can't, cannot wrap my head around like, what does a few minutes of professional development look like? So that's really interesting. So it's important. It's hard. And we don't teach it. We somehow expect people just to absorb this by osmosis. And so we end up with a bunch of workplaces where we have people who don't know, you know, they've kind of figured out and felt their way through collaboration, but they don't necessarily know why what they're doing is working or why what they're doing is not working. And then they're kind of training in an informal way, people. And so it's it's kind of a you know, big surprise. We end up with a, a lot of people who really don't know how to do this well, but who's personal lives, whose professional lives would be so intensely augmented, including their their work products, the innovation, their workplace well-being, all those things would be elevated if we invested resources to actually train people how to do this. And you said that it's important and it's hard. And I'd love to dive into those a little bit more. So why is it important? Particularly um, the audience for this is managers and leaders. Why is it important that managers and leaders know how to collaborate well? So I would reckon that anybody listening to this can point to at least one horrendous collaboration that they've been a part of, something that was took way, way more effort than anybody predicted it would have going in, or where the final product was like this measly representation of what the anticipated vision was at the outset, or where somebody tried to strong arm their position and like, you know, or pull the rug out from it or be somebody steal credit, place blame. There are dozens of ways that collaboration can go wrong. Um, but if you think about, okay, so why why does it matter? There are four big buckets where our timelines, they slow way down if the gears at the collaboration clock are not articulating smoothly together. So we create operational drag when collaborations aren't going well. So timelines Bottom lines are absolutely affected because of all these other things like the timelines, also the the well-being of individuals when they're in these collabor, I call them the collaborate relationships where you want to poke your eyeballs out rather than collaborate with these people. Um, individuals who are in those horrible collaborative relationships, their anxiety is through the roof, their depression is through the roof, they're looking for other jobs, which is going to cost you, manager, your organization money because of all of those rehiring costs. And so people just don't bring their best ideas to the table when it feels like they're gonna someone's gonna jump down their throat or someone's gonna steal their ideas or someone's gonna give them that nasty look across the table, it shuts people down. And so whether we're talking timelines, bottom lines, innovation, or well-being. Not having collaboration in place is costly to organizations and to obviously the people. So that's the why, you know, why it matters. And what was the other part? Why is it hard? Oh, yeah, it's hard because people are hard. People are so messy and, you know, we're inconsistent. All of us are. Who we are today is not the same person who we were yesterday. And yet we're navigating all of these differences through really convoluted operational processes through multi, you know, there are all these different um, variables at play and motivations for the business. The business's interests shift, you know, from quarter to quarter, and so it's a it's like trying to walk on a high wire in a windstorm across moving sands. I mean, there there are all these metaphors that that can come up in here, and so it takes a lot of intention, a lot of attention, a lot of intentionality. It takes good systems and processes. 
And it ideally takes the collaboration culture in the workplace that really supports it and creates that sturdy container for these difficult behaviors to unfold. And presumably, if we think about those kids in playing together, there's something innate within us that wants to collaborate with other people. Yeah. I mean, we are social animals, 100%. Our ancestors would not have survived the savannas had they not been forming groups and tribes. And, um, you know, in our more recent history, I like to say those barns didn't raise themselves. I mean, it's like we need community and we need to know how to navigate the complexities of community. And so, But there is absolutely, an, I think, an instinctual need, a, a very core human need to connect, to belong, to do, and to be together. And your book is called Collaborate, but it's got this silent H in it, hasn't it? So it's collaborate, which really, like, I saw that and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let me look at that because it resonated for me. Why did you go with that name? So I have to say first the caveat that I love collaborating, obviously. I, this is something that's near and dear to my heart. It's um, It's been my lifeblood as a professional. So I want to say that. And I want to say it's really freaking hard sometimes. And I don't know that we talk very often about the hard stuff. Instead, there's all of this kumbaya energy around collaboration that somehow it's some combination between sliced bread and the bee's knees and the best tool for every job. And I just just don't buy that because there's, yeah, in fact, seven out of 10 people in the survey said that they have been in a collaboration that was absolutely horrendous. There is a lot of pain out there where people have had these bad experiences when they carry that baggage with them into the workplace. And, you know, as a psychologist, I'm not a clinician, but gosh, I I read a lot of psychology. One thing we know is that you can't make things better by not talking about them. So I wanted to put that H in the title, the collaborate, to help us give voice to the hard parts, because I think that's really the only way that we're going to be able to, you know, if we, if we lift up that gross carpet and see what's underneath. It's like, oh gosh, that's what I have to clean. Once we know what's there, we can start unpacking it and addressing it and you know, bringing the solutions to those problems. But unless we talk about the hard stuff, the silent age, the pain, we're not going to be able to make this whole collaboration thing you know, better for more people. I completely agree. And I also think it normalizes the fact that it's a struggle Sometimes, because otherwise you can sit there and go, there's something wrong with me. I'm finding this hard. I shouldn't find it hard. It must be my issue. And I find women, we tend to do that a lot. We tend to internalize and rather than blame the external situations, we always go, oh, we're not enough. Maybe I just need to work harder or be better. Um, So I really like that we're unpacking that, that you unpack it in your book and you're open about the challenges that come with it. And now you've got, you've developed your own matrix as well, haven't you? Um, obviously, it's easier to see a matrix visually than describe it on a podcast. So we're going to give it a bit of a shot, aren't we? So tell us about your matrix. You know what? Even just you saying that, I'm going to send you a link for a PDF. So if people would like to download the the pretty version of this, that way you could follow along or just I, I'm looking at my wall right now because I have a copy of it hanging up. So I'll share that. So the magic matrix articulates that there are two dimensions that underlie whether or not you have a high quality collaborative relationship. First one is your collaborative relationship quality, which is so simply how good or bad you feel about the relationship that you're in. So do you like this person? Do you trust them? Do you, Can you count on them? These are all the things, by the way, that 
signal a positive relationship in our romantic lives also. And so like, oh, this person's responsive to my needs. Great. So we've got this relationship quality variable and it can go from low to high. And then on the other axis, we have interdependence. And what interdependence is, is the extent to which we're in the same boat. So we're going to sink or swim. So more formally, it's the extent to which our outcomes are mutually dependent on the other person's behaviors. So what you do influences me, what I do influences you. And the stronger that influence is, then the more um, interdependent we are. When you have this really high interdependence, we're like hand in glove, I throw the ball, I know you're going to catch it, and you have really high relationship quality. So I I like you, I enjoy spending time with you, I see you as competent, I see you as responsive. That's where you have these collaborate relationships. This is where, you know, I like to say the glitter-encrusted unicorns fly through the sky and you can do amazing things together because of that high interdependence, high relationship quality. But you have high interdependence, but low relationship quality. So in other words, I'm hitched to your wagon and or my, you know, my wagon is hitched, I should say, my wagon is hitched to your ill-mannered horses, and I think you're gonna run me off a cliff and I can't get out of this dang situation. And I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't think you're good at your job. I know that you don't follow through on anything. So I don't think you take your work seriously, like all these sorts of things. That's where I'm especially miserable. So that um, big, the big differentiator there is that relationship quality piece. Interesting. And in the world of work, you often don't get a choice about who you collaborate with, do you? I mean, you and I work for ourselves. Um, and so we can choose whether or not we enter into collaborations. But in the world of work, you're probably collaborating with quite a lot of different people across different departments without any choice on that. Yeah. And so given you've got a lot of managers and directors and executives listening, this is the advice there is be intentional about creating opportunities for your people to create good quality relationships before throwing them on teams or them on to, to smaller projects first. So they, you know, there's not a ton of interdependence. Like, yeah, we're going to be here for a month, whatever. Um, we're not going to be stuck on this team for two years. Maybe start with something small to give us a chance to get to know and respect and like one another. Likewise, if you're having personnel conflicts um, in the workplace, sometimes what will people will do is like, okay, well, we're going to put the two of you together um, to, to work it out, or we're going to bring in some support so you can work on your relationship. And not, not based because in what I talk about this in the matrix, that the pathway from collaborate to collaborate, you can't just shoot straight up there. You have to first decrease interdependence and then increase relationship quality and then increase interdependence again. So it's kind of like if you have a, a marital couple that is on the, you know, on the edge of divorce. It's not going to be helpful to them if the therapist says, you know what you should do is go do some trust falls. That would be really great for your relationship. No, what what they're going to advise is if the resources are available to separate for a while, one person moves to the basement or to another flat, get some independence. So release some of that interdependence and then start working on the relationship quality 
maybe through therapy, maybe through some intentional, you know, re-getting to know you exercises. And then once that relationship is strong again, then bring people back together by, you know, bringing like, let's move back in together. But you can't just ignore the the really intense power of interdependence. You really have to flex that as well. That's really interesting. And presumably there's some role as well for them working on themselves in terms of reflecting of how am I showing up at my worst in this situation or how am I being triggered by this or how's my how am I impacting the other person? Because often we go into that blame thing. We want to be right. They're wrong. Therefore, we're perfect. Um, oh and actually that reflection piece is probably really important. Yeah, and this whole idea of how do we slow down the stories we're telling about ourselves and other people, like we're the hero or, you know, that person's an irresponsible jerk, uh, as opposed to person might have other things going their lives. How about I get a little curious about how they're doing and offer that sense of, you know, move into that sense of caring connection, which is foundational to what it means to be in a high quality relationship. And what do you think about personality profiling and how this fits with it because often you see team building days where they will do um insights or disc or myers briggs or something like that with the idea of recognizing different personality we, we approach things differently we communicate differently do you think how does that map on to to collaboration do you think well i find those you know, those tests have various levels of empirical backing. Regardless of that, I think what's really valuable for teens is it gives them a shared vocabulary for talking about my needs, my preferences, the way I approach the world. And it lets people, you know, perhaps haven't um, themselves been able to identify those differences or to say, like, I have a preference. It gives them the ability to do that perhaps for the first time. In other words, it creates opportunities for self-awareness and through self-awareness, then we can communicate and explore what that means, what those puzzle pieces mean in relation to others. And, you know, so I, I like, I like the tools for that reason. And then to be able to say, so what, what does this mean for how we work together? We've started to talk about my, you know, my preferences and how I'm going to structure and what assumptions I'm making and realizing like, what, you mean not everybody creates a to-do list on Monday for the entire week? But I can imagine it. it's really annoying to me or to others if I start emailing them on Monday asking about the Friday to-dos. It never occurred to me before. So just those, that insight can then change the storytelling. It changes the behaviors. And I think it changes the conversations that we're having with other people to, to set up the work and to track it, to hold accountable and so on. And earlier you mentioned how they can be useful for identifying your needs, um, which brings me on to gender and whether women are naturally better at collaboration because we're attuned to other people's needs um, or whether we're not better at collaboration. I think I've seen quite a few leadership studies saying we are better at bringing the best out of other people and at leading teams because we can engender collaboration. But what are your thoughts on, on gender and collaboration? So, you know, one of the one of the things I talk about in the book um, is this idea of bringing the donuts <laughs> as a way of increasing relationship quality. And all it means is finding these nice ways of making other people's lives easier. And when I was writing that section, I was kind of breaking out in hives because a lot of it was sounding like, go, go do traditionally, stereotypically, uh, 
female things in the workplace. And that's not what I mean, um, because, and I, I even talk about in the book, it's like, you know, you can volunteer to take notes, but don't always be the person to volunteer to take notes. And that should not be tied to your your gender or your gender expression, like move it around the room, people, you know, that sort of thing. But there are a lot of things that women have been socialized for that do smooth the the rails of collaboration, like asking other, you know, being really intentional about monitoring what what else is happening in the room, paying attention to power dynamics, those sorts of things that have historically been really important for our success in the workplace. So yeah, so I don't want to be gendered. And some of those things that we've picked up actually do help us in the collaboration area arena. I find it really interesting, certainly for me, when I think about other people's needs, I, I've always been quite good at, at the collaboration and influencing side of things and, and motivating people because I can think about what do they need and what do they want. The issue is I don't always think about what I need. And in a workplace, I can do that quite well, actually, because I'm like, well, this is my job. This is what I need to do. But in relationships, I'm all about the other people's needs. And then I'm like, oh, I don't even know what I want or need. Or you resent it because your needs aren't being met, but you've never even articulated them to yourselves, to yourself, never mind anybody else. But it feels like something when I coach, it feels like something a lot of women um, kind of wrestle with. And I think that is that socialization, isn't it? I totally agree. And I'm thinking about Leanne Davies. She's the New York Times bestselling author of The Good Fight. She has this wonderful story where she talks about the Valentine's Day effect where a friend of hers said, I'm so excited for Valentine's Day. I'm really hoping my partner gives me the like, whatever the gift was. And Leanne said, so have you told him that's what you want? And the friend is like, no, no, no. If he loves me, he'll know that's what I want. And you know, none of us are mind readers. And it's just, it's baffling that we set ourselves up for disappointment by not communicating to other people our needs and our wants. And I do think sometimes it's because we haven't taken the time to going back to that idea of self-reflection and getting to know thyself as a critical, not optional part of our own development to say, what what do I want? What What's good for me here? What's feeling not right? And then, and then once we have that awareness to be able to express it. So I, I totally agree. If there, you know, if we've stuffed that sense of being allowed to have needs and wants, then big surprise, we're not going to be expressing them in our collaboration. So that's something I think a lot of us, myself included, can absolutely work on. It reminds me of, um, I've had this situation numerous times when coaching where someone's come to me and said, I want my support from my manager. My manager is not giving me enough support. And I've gone, great. Okay, so what support do you need? And how have you asked for it? And they never know exactly what support they need. There's just a general sense of not feeling supported enough. And they've certainly never articulated it. Um, And we don't often think to do that. So it's good to have that reminder. Yeah. Do you have any strategies that you offer your coaching clients on how how to create that habit of mind? I think it's about, for me, I talk the same as you in terms of not being a mind reader and just thinking when you're feeling that dissatisfaction with something, just even just asking yourself, do I know what I want and have I articulated it can be enough of a a jolt to go, oh, no, I am exact. I am totally expecting them, like totally expecting the boyfriends to get the right present without ever doing it. So I think it's just recognizing that what we think is a flaw in someone else actually is that lack of, like you said, the critical thinking, like actually spending the time thinking about 
what you need. So sometimes I think people just need that reminder in relationships that it's not always about the other person. It's about what we're bringing or not bringing or not articulating um, or not challenging and then sitting there resenting. So we do a lot of work on boundaries because we can sit there and feel like we're being really kind, not having articulated any boundaries, but they're there. It's just people don't know about them and we're feeling resentful of them. So I love Brené Brown's work on that. It, it just rings so true, doesn't it? So true. And I love the way you express that. Now I, uh, you can't see, you can probably see, you can see your listeners can't. I've got a lot of sticky notes around me and on one part of the wall, it's all like reminders to myself. And I think I'm going to to add a sticky note about, do I know what I want? I shared what I want as a, that would be a good sticky note to have up there. Yeah. I've, I've not had much therapy, but the one bit of therapy I did have, they were like, oh, what are your needs in a relationship? So I was just completely blank because that had never occurred to me. So um, I'm quite good on a workplace, but I'm going to apply that everywhere. Now, the other thing really quickly, another question I love on that is what kind of relationship am I ready for? Yeah. Awesome. Right. Okay. Sorry. Sidebar. I'm going to I'm going to ponder that. I'm also going to look at the resources from that nonprofit about letting your kids be free range because I totally need to work on that. I'm like, oh, my little person will keep them safe at all times. So, yeah. I will have a look at those. Now, on the um on your matrix, you had those two points on the axis and one was around relationships. And in your book you share nine strategies to increase relationship quality. Now, if people want to know all nine, they're going to have to go and read the book. But we picked out a few now. We picked out Bring the Donuts, which we talked about. But talk to me about expectations and how they fit into relationship quality. Yeah, so it actually is a great build on from what we were just talking about, how we have needs and wants and we need to express them, but we also have expectations. And these expectations can be as basic as, you know, if I send you an email, do I expect that you'll be responding in two minutes? hours, two days, maybe in a couple of weeks. Um, if we're setting up a team, we all have expectations about email responsiveness. Have we actually articulated what those are and co-created shared expectations about how we're going to be responding to each other? And it's around all these really functional tactical things like the email reply, where are we storing our shared files? How are we naming them? Are we using a, a standardized folder structure so everyone can find them later? make stuff and keep some things on our desktop and some things in Dropbox and some things in Google Drive. And, you know, we'll be able to hunt it out later. It's okay. Maybe that is how you want to roll. But unless you've had an explicit conversation about those expectations and what it means, um, here's another one, what it means to come prepared to a meeting. So if, you know, our, if we're only meeting to really do the thinking work and in order to do the thinking work, people need to have read this article or this draft or something. They haven't done it. Have we? Are we ready to articulate that this is truly an expectation? We can't do our work together unless everyone comes prepared. Coming prepared looks like this. And if you don't come prepared, then we could talk about what the consequences of that are. But you know, so much of that. You know, if I go into a group, I know I know what I expect. I know what I am hoping for. And unless I articulate that, it's so easy for other people to disappoint me. So it's such a simple thing. And in, in terms, you know, we were talking about your interest in influence. And in terms of influence, you articulate expectations, but other people aren't articulating expectations. 
right there, your expectations are going to have more influence on how that group is operating than the people who are who haven't thought about their expectations or who aren't articulating them. So that that one I think connects pretty clearly. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts though. I totally agree. I do a bit of training on um I do a lot on influencing, do it by do a session on stakeholder management. And one of the key things I say when it comes to managing your senior stakeholders is get really clear on their expectations of you in terms, particularly in terms of communication. Um, because you can think you're doing a fantastic job communicating, but if they are chasing you for information, they do not think you're doing a fantastic job. And equally, everyone can sit there going, that's someone's job to do X. But unless you said whose job it is, that everyone's sitting there frustrated thinking, oh, it's not my job. So that expectations piece, absolutely key in so many areas as well. I used to be a recruitment consultant and run a recruitment company, and we would place directors into roles within the nonprofit sector. And the thing that determined whether someone succeeded or not is whether their expectations and the organization's expectations were aligned in terms of things like change, how much change do you want them to make, how much are they empowered, how much are the senior leadership team prepared to change their own behavior in order to create change that they want to see in the organization. It was always that expectations piece. And it, it applies across all different areas. I talk to, um, I, I work quite a lot with managers who are relatively new as well. And I talk about stepping into your authority that comes with the role. Um, and many people feel uncomfortable doing this. We are trained as women quite often to embrace responsibility, but not necessarily embrace authority. And that setting expectations piece as a line manager is so important and goes back to that idea that if you're not sharing those expectations, you've still got them in your head and you're not being fair to someone by not sharing them and not holding them accountable. I think that's probably another one within the nine, isn't it? That once you set those expectations, how you hold people accountable to them. And especially holding yourself accountable to them. So if you know that the group has set these expectations around the communication rhythms or when things need to get escalated up the up the chain, things like that, but you're not then doing them. Why why would anybody be excited to work with you again? Because <laughs> a whole bunch of this actually is how we we create a situation where we ourselves are valued and valuable collaborators. And so honoring the expectations that the group set is a piece of that. And that links to one of the other pieces we were going to talk about for relationship quality, which is about being responsive. Yeah. So this one comes directly from the close relationships literature as well. So we know that one of the biggest drivers of relationship quality in any of these relationships is feeling like other people see us and are responding to our, our needs. And so if I say, dear manager, I'm feeling totally overwhelmed. I need a hand figuring out, you know, what how to prioritize or this off the plate. And the manager replies, okay, we'll set up a time to talk about that next month. It's not being responsive. It's like, yeah, you heard that I'm having a problem and I need some help, but to to put me off for a month isn't going to be particularly helpful. And so you know, if somebody signals um, whether they're overwhelmed or they're struggling with something or they're feeling um, this particular interaction or this relationship or collaboration is feeling a bit risky for some reason where, gosh, you know, last time I worked with this guy um, in the middle of our big presentation, he stood up and started listing off the the seven unmitigated risks that uh, 
he hadn't mentioned during any of our team meetings, I'm feeling really nervous to go work with him again. Those are all opportunities for a conversation about, you know, what what can we do right here and right now to help um, address that need that you're expressing. And so that responsiveness is important. And as you say that, I was thinking about the self-awareness piece. How, is there anything, I'm only halfway through so far the book, is there anything in the book that can help someone identify how good a collaborator they are? So I did not include any particular um, assessments like in the book, but there's an assessment that you can go and take online and then get your your score that evaluates your particular relationship along those two dimensions. Um, What's interesting is as you're reading the book, I've had a number of people reach out and say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I was being such a bad collaborator. In fact, one friend texted me and she said, Deb, I'm reading the book and I just had to put it down because in the middle of it, I realized I really left it one of my collaborators hanging on this big project because I hadn't gotten back to her, even though I told her I would get her a draft of this thing they were working on you know, weeks ago. I haven't. And your book has made me feel really guilty about that. And now I'm taking reparative action. So, so there's not so much an assessment that you can go to to evaluate if you're a good collaborator or not. But in there, it's things like, you know, are you um, going above and beyond every now and again just to make other people's lives easier? Yes, you get a point for being a good collaborator. If you only ever do only what's written and exactly what's expected of you and nothing more, and you're never looking out for other people's needs. So it's interesting. Maybe I should make that be a pretty easy piece to put together and make available to people. So I'll, I'm going to write that down as an idea for a future piece of content. Excellent. Um, now, there's so much we could go into, but we're short on time. So I'm going to draw the questions to an end there and just ask how, if people want to find out more about you. Obviously, your book is out there, but where else can they go? The easiest place to find me is at debmashek.com. So it's D-E-B. M-A-S-H-E-K dot com. And there are links to the book, to newsletter, to all my socials, all the things. And I love, love, love being in conversation with people. So if you ever want to chat about a collaboration challenge in your workplace, please reach out. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to learn all about this. I'm looking forward to what I'm going to learn in the second half of the book. I was also reading it and going, I don't do a lot of collaboration at the moment because I work for myself. And I realized there is apprehension that comes with the idea of collaborating because with collaborating comes the introduction of tension, even if that's healthy tension, because you are balancing other people's needs. And I'm like, oh, at the moment, my working world is revolved around my client's needs or my needs. And actually, it's a lot. it takes effort and energy, doesn't it, to collaborate effectively? Yeah, I feel strongly that a, collaboration is not the right tool for every job, and B, we should not be collaborating because we think it's, you know, the, like, oh, we're supposed to or we have to. To me, the reason to collaborate is because we truly and authentically believe that the end result meets our needs and interests. So some people find that surprising, that I'm a huge advocate for self-interest in collaboration. If you don't know why you're doing it or what you're going to get out of it, don't bother. I think that is a, a great summary sentence there. So thanks, Deb. Do go and buy the book. Not you, the listeners. <laughs> go and buy Deb's book. Um, go and connect with her. And um, I hope that this gives you some really useful tools and structures to get you thinking about how you can be a better collaborator in the workplace. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please do go into your podcast player, whichever one it is, and hit follow or subscribe. That means that you'll get every episode delivered to your device and it also tells the podcast platforms that this is a podcast worth listening to. Um, So head over now and hit follow or subscribe today.